Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast for water treaters by water treaters, where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Folks, Trace Blackmore here, and I am actually recording this introduction at a convention just for podcasters. I know we always go to the AWT annual convention, which we're going to be talking about in a few short minutes, but I have actually signed up and attended for the last two days a convention for podcasters. Folks, three years ago, heck, it was two years ago, I don't even think I knew what a podcast was. Now it's been almost 18 months. I've been hosting Scaling Up H2O, and it has been so much fun for me. In fact, so much fun, I wanted to invest more of my time and more of my resources so I could learn how to do this show better for you, the Scaling Up Nation. And I'm learning so much here. In fact, I have been taking so many notes. I don't know how I'm going to organize everything so I can start creating some action items to get these items to you. I've started doing that and I've listed out the top five things that I want to do. And it's my hope that you see in upcoming episodes that I am bringing more concise content to you in a way that allows you to consume it in a much easier way. And I'm looking for things to do on my website to allow us all to connect as a community that much easier. So among those, I want to try to organize my show notes a little bit better. Folks, there is no secret about it. I knew nothing about podcasting when I started this in April of last year, and everything that I have learned has been trial by fire. But you guys have been great. You've been very patient with me as I've been experimenting with this platform. And I got to tell you, I really enjoy bringing it to you. I told you a couple things that we're going to start doing. Many of you have told me how much you appreciate me bringing products that I use in my life to you so they can help you in your life, but they're a little difficult to find on our show notes page. So we're going to create a products page so you can very easily find the resources that we mention on the show so you can then find those and use those. Also, and this is one of the coolest things that I am really excited about. As you know, I answer questions on my show and I try to keep the listeners anonymous. Well, some of you have reached out to me and said, hey, I don't want to be anonymous. I want to hear my name on Scaling Up. So I've heard you and I'm going to give you the option now if you want me to read your name, if you don't want me to read your name, but I'm going to go one step further. I've actually created a space on scalinguph2o.com where you can click on the right-hand side of the page and you can record a message that comes directly to me and my team of your question and I will play you asking your question right on the air. So how cool is that. So that is live now. We are doing that right this second. So go to scalinguph2o.com and you can record your voice and hear your question on the air. I've actually got to ask about that for you in a couple of minutes, but I want to talk about a couple of things first. 
One of the last things I want to mention about this podcast convention, by the way, it's called Podcast Movement, is it's all about the connection with the audience. Every single presentation that I've been to, they've been talking about you have to give your audience a place to connect. And folks, that's the reason I started this show. That's the reason I'm trying to get some more materials out for you so we don't feel like we're alone. I know you're listening to me in your car, driving from account to account. Some of us don't even go into our home offices to see other water treaters on a regular basis, and we feel extremely lonely out there. Well, now we're all part of the Scaling Up Nation, and we have a community where we can communicate and understand each other and the issues that we face each and every day. I just created a platform. You folks out there are the ones that have created the community. And I want to make sure that I give opportunities for the Scaling Up Nation to continue to work with each other. So I've got some ideas that I'm going to try to put into action over the next couple of months. So be listening for that. But the number one thing that they mentioned during these presentations is to have a community where people want to tell other people about the community. I had nothing to do with that part. That was all you. And the reason so many water treaters are listening to Scaling Up is because of the fine folks out there in the Scaling Up Nation. And yes, that's you. You have gone out and you've told other people about this show and you have been the evangelist for Scaling Up and my ratings show that and that is because all the hard work that you do and you continue to do and I want to thank you for it. It's very exciting when I see my ratings go up, very exciting when I get notes or emails from the fine folks in the Scaling Up Nation saying, I just received my CWT or I just tried something new that you mentioned on the show. Whatever it was, I love hearing stuff like that, and I love the fact that we're all not alone. We are all now part of the Scaling Up Nation. Well, we are, as far as I know, the only water treatment podcast out there. And in the theme of water treatment, we actually have a holiday coming up. Now, James McDonald, CWT, friend of the show, longtime Scaling Up Nation member, he actually has gone out and created a holiday for us water treatment people. It is Industrial Water Week, and it is October 1st through 5th. We have our own holiday. How cool is that? And how awesome is James McDonald for making that happen? So for five days, we're going to be celebrating Industrial Water Week. So Monday is pre-treatment, Tuesday is boilers, Wednesday is cooling, Thursday is wastewater, and Friday is careers. Now, if you want to find out more about this, I've created a link that goes directly to the Industrial Water Week website. It's scalinguph2o.com forward slash IWW. That's scalinguph2o.com forward slash IWW. That's Industrial Water Week. 
And in preparation for this, I want to have James McDonald back on the show where we're going to talk about that. And I thought, how cool would it be if I did a mini episode each and every day surrounding the topic of whatever day we're on? So for example, on Mondays, we'll talk about pre-treatment. On Tuesdays, we'll talk about boilers. On Wednesday, we'll talk about cooling towers and cooling systems. On Thursdays, we'll talk about wastewater. And then on the 5th, which is Friday, we will talk about careers. Now, here's the ask that I have for the Scaling Up Nation. I would love for you to send me your topic-specific questions on what I just mentioned, boilers, cooling towers, pre-treatments, wastewaters, and career. But I thought it would be so cool if you could hear your own voice on Scaling Up. So my ask is for you to go to scalinguph2o.com and click record voicemail and actually send me your question with your voice. I will play you asking your question on the air and then either I or an industry expert in that area will answer your question. So help me make these five shows that I really want to make and deliver that content to you that I know you want to consume by going to scalinguph2o.com and recording your questions there. Well, before we even make it to Industrial Water Week, which again is October 1st through 5th, we have the Association of Water Technologies annual convention coming up in Orlando, Florida, September 26th through 29th. As you all know, out there in the Scaling Up Nation, this is the one-stop shop for us to speak with every vendor just about that we will ever need in the water treatment industry. Of course, the AWT does a great job of having presentations there that build us as water treaters and allow us to be recharged and want to go back and try new things. And I'm happy to say that I am actually presenting on two different papers at the convention this year. So I'll give you some more information about that. Actually, I'm kind of moderating one. And then the second one, I've done some trials, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that as that date comes up. So I sure hope that you can join us. I would love to see you, and I'm going to be doing some things to allow the Scaling Up Nation to connect while we're there. And it's my hope that we could all come together and help each other network and make the most out of the 2018 convention. So to learn more about AWT's 2018 convention in Orlando, taking place September 26th through 29th, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash AWT 2018. Once again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash AWT 2018. Before we get to our guest, and I got to tell you, I was a little nervous about talking about products on this show, but the Scaling Up Nation has been so great with letting me know that you are interested in what I use in my life to make things easier for me. And of course, you know, we're always driving around our cars. We don't have time to read books, but there's so much information in books. And one of the biggest tools that I use on a regular basis is 
Audible. And you know that Audible has been working with Scaling Up for a couple of months now and offering the Scaling Up Nation one free month and one free book. If you go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash audible, many of you have done this and many of you have written back to me and told me how much you love listening in the car, of course, when you're not listening to Scaling Up, but in between episodes, you're listening to books that allow you to do what you do better. And I'm so happy for those emails. Please keep those coming. Now, today's episode is continuing with what we were talking about last week. So last week, we brought Daniel Perry on, good friend of mine, owner of a Chick-fil-A restaurant, and it was all about the incredible things that they do and how they do them, but they were all based around core values. Now, the cool thing is, is the folks out there, you find folks in the Scaling Up Nation have come back to me via email and you want to learn more about developing core values. So I thought, let's go ahead and stay on that topic of core values and working with the team and how we develop all of these things. So our guest today is Rick Packer. And Rick Packer works for a company called The Table Group. Now, The Table Group is Pat Lencioni's company. And Pat is one of my favorite authors because of the material that he writes hits so awesomely well. Can I say that? Is that that a correct English? Well, I just said it. And it allows us to be able to build our teams better. I have used his books for years. One of Pat's most famous books is called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Five Dysfunctions of a Team, basically it's a fable about this team that's dysfunctional, and it takes you through the process of what they did to get them to become a functional team. It's one of my favorite books. It's one of the things that we definitely use in my company. And when I consult with other water treatment companies and we're working on team building, it's something that I always send before I head out to do the consulting so they can start reading that and start working with their teams. I hope you enjoy my interview with Rick Packer. Rick, another good friend of mine, and Rick goes in and he takes the material that Pat and his company with the table group have, and he works one-on-one with teams to make them function in the best capacity that they can. So enough of me talking about Rick. Let's go ahead and get to my interview with Rick Packer of the table group. My lab partner today is Rick Packer of The Table Group. Rick, so good to have you in the studio today, in the Scaling Up studio. So how are you doing? I'm doing great, Trace. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Well, you are on with The Scaling Up Nation, and everybody out there in The Scaling Up Nation wants to know how they can be better at work. And I think that's a good thing to want to know because that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here with you. This will be great. Awesome. Well, Rick, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I live here in Atlanta. Uh, I've been married to Christy for 21 years. We have three daughters. My oldest is heading off to college this fall, uh, middle daughter in high school, and uh, youngest who is in middle school. Uh, Christy and I met at uh, The Ohio State University, and uh, we were both diehard Buckeyes. Professionally, I worked at CompuServe in the early mid-90s. 
So at CompuServe, well, we got acquired by a large company, like a Fortune 20 company in 97, and I rode that way for quite some time. And then my last six months there, I was kind of getting frustrated with my role, and I started cold calling this leadership company. And um, that's how Christy and I and the family ended up in Atlanta, because my, my last job there at that company was in leadership development. And um, I called this author and I said, uh, I love your stuff. I think you're missing out on a big opportunity in the marketplace and I want to work for you. And that's how we ended up in Atlanta from Ohio. How about that? Yeah. And the so, author you're talking about is, of course? Well, that was John Maxwell. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I, I ended up working for John for a couple of years. Um, and then that's where I met Pat Lencioni, which is now the organization that I consult for, the Table Group. At the Table Group, you know, one of the things that we do is we, you know, we consult for executive teams and CEOs and leaders usually for you know a year or two but we, we work with teams to help them get better get rid of dysfunction we're going to talk more about that in a little bit help them align on strategy so yeah pat lencioni and i met back in 2003 his firm is the table group and that's where i do my consulting so i've always been curious where did the name the table group oh yeah from? we get the question all the time so with all the advances in technology over the last you know 20 or 30 years we believe that still the best piece of equipment in an organization is the table. It's where people get around to have real conversations about the real issues that they're facing in their marketplace. And this is radio, so they can't see it, but we are around a table right we now. We are, absolutely. <laughs> so I, I wanna ask this question because we have a mix of people that listen to this show. We have business owners and we have people that run kind of their own businesses within a business because they're out taking care of clients. Mm -hmm. So, if I am listening and I don't run my own business, why do I need to keep listening? Yeah, so I mean, if I think about um, the 11 or so uh, books that Pat has published, think about this, the most important organization in our lives is our families. And we've had clients over the years tell us, you know that book um, that you guys you know, talk about and all your models come from, you can apply that to the family. So you know, the team book that we'll talk about here in a little bit, People have come back to us and say, we can apply that within our family. So over a number of years, we got this feedback that people were applying it to their families. So Pat wrote a book called The Three Big Questions of the Frantic Family. So again, if you think about different organizations and the most important one, we believe, is the family. This stuff is very you know, applicable there. You know, beyond the family, though, I mean, think about the different types of organizations people belong to outside of work. So whether it's PTA, whether you coach a little league team, whether it's volunteer groups at church, you're in an environment that requires leadership and you're probably either leading a team or on a team. But then lastly, kind of back at work, if you're not the CEO, maybe you're a leader. If you're not a leader, you're probably a member of a team. And in fact, Pat's latest book is called The Ideal Team Player. Mm -hmm. So again, whether you own your own company, whether you're a CEO, a lot of the different models and books that we end up talking about today, you can apply at home and family, in the community, or in your work environment. Great reason to keep listening. So let's talk about some of the books that, that you mentioned. And, and the latest book, and I think it's the latest book, mm -hmm. The Advantage. Hmm. And, and when I read The Advantage, and he's saying, no, that's not the latest book, but on my notes, it says it's The Advantage, so we're gonna <laughs> go with it. So uh, we'll talk about the latest book, so, so stay tuned for that. But with The Advantage, when I read that, hmm. you know, it's a great analysis of all the other books, hmm. many of the other books that yeah. I 
read that he had written before. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So it's Pat's only non-fable book. And we'll talk more about the fables, I think, here in a few minutes. But it combines a whole bunch of different um, frameworks from five of Pat's previous books. And it really just outlines the entire consulting process that we use with clients ourselves. So the five different books that are kind of combined in the advantage are The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, uh, Death by Meeting, a very interesting title that we can talk more about, uh, Silos, Politics, and Turf Wars, The Four Obsessions of an Executive, and The Five Temptations of a CEO. So you take all those books and combine them into one overall model that are, you know, the people who've read it have responded so positively to say, this is the book that I need to use to run my business, to lead my team, to lead my department, or to be a great, great team member. And we were talking a little bit before we started this show, and you mentioned that when you were trying to figure out writing this book, you were unclear if that was going to take people away from reading the original books or how that was going to go. Mm. And you shared something very interesting with me. Do you mind sharing that with the audience? Yeah, sure. I just remember talking with Pat and all the rest of the folks at the table group. And because all of his books up to that point were fables, and we were just debating, you know, should the advantage be a fable or should it be a traditional business book? And of course, we went down the route of a traditional business book. And the response has been positive. And then, of course, what ends up happening is people will read the advantage and then they'll want to get more information, let's say, on the five dysfunctions of a team or death by meeting. And then they'll go back and pick up those fables, if you will. So that's just been incredible to see from our clients or from the people who read our book, just how they've responded to the different formats, fable or traditional business book. We mentioned the word fable several times. Mm. And of course, that is the, the cornerstone of how Pat Lencioni conveys his message. I'll tell you a little bit about my story, but before we do, what exactly is a business fable? So we say that truth is stranger than fiction. And you know, if, if, if we would put into a traditional business book, the stories and the examples that we see from the clients we work with, people wouldn't believe it because it's, it's, we deal with some difficult circumstances. So we think that it really helps carry the story forward and keeps readers engaged because one of the most common things that we hear back from people after reading the book is, I see myself, I see my colleagues, I see my boss, I see my team members in the storyline of those books because it just it feels so real for them. And um, it's just been very successful for Pat. Plus, uh, when Pat was younger, I think in his college years, he was playing around with some, you know, screenwriting and some playwrights and some other things like that. So it's very natural for him as a creative and very curious type person. How about that? Well, I, I have seen the reason for his madness, why <laughs> he does this fable. I got to tell you, I am not a fan of the business fable. I don't want to learn about fictitious people that don't <laughs> exist and they're going through this fictitious story. Tell me what I need to do and apply it. And later, a friend of mine, Jace Brooks, said, well, Trace, just go to the very last chapter and you can get that. But I didn't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. But a couple of years ago, as a team, we read The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And I think that's the best book that he has ever written. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the best business books ever written mm -hmm. because if you can't establish those five items, forget what your plans are. And I know we're gonna talk about that a little bit later, but if you can't get those five items right, you don't have a prayer of everybody rowing in the right direction. And you have a whole bunch of things going on in between there. But by having that in the fable format, mm -hmm. 
my team who did not want to read a business book, the people on there that was like, oh no, we don't want to read a business book, they actually got into the story. And because they enjoyed the story, they learned the message that Pat was writing about. So I have seen the light. I understand why he does what he does. Yeah, it's very compelling for the reader because to your exact point, there are some people in an organization who love the traditional business book for the exact reasons that you just mentioned, and others who need that storyline to draw them into the reason that they need to learn it and then apply it back in the workplace. So obviously it's not the latest book, but it's one of the later yeah, books. Sure. So the advantage, let me ask you, what is the advantage? Yeah, so what Pat did in that book and what we do in our consulting practice is we wanna help clients do several things. One is we wanna break down in very simple terms the two requirements for success. And those are, we have to be smart. And the second one is you have to be healthy. But what most business leaders and business people pay attention to is just the smart side of the equation, which really is about metrics and numbers and driving growth. And if you think about a lot of people's backgrounds or education, even conferences people attend. It's all about the decision sciences of what that school or business or conference is all about. And a lot of leaders just don't have the muscle memory to consider or look at the other half of the equation. And that is, are we healthy? Things like minimal politics, high levels of trust, high levels of clarity, low levels of confusion, low levels of politics, high productivity, high morale, low turnover. And when you, when you think of the simplicity between, oh yeah, there are smart components that run an organization and there are healthy components, we just don't know how to quantify the healthy stuff so we don't pay attention to it. But a classic example is something very simple. So let's say you're having a team meeting and it's budget season and you walk into the room, you pass out a spreadsheet and we're all looking at you know, next year's budget. Well, the conversation isn't all that engaging. You see what the numbers, you know what they are. But then after the meeting, a team member pulls another colleague aside and says, hey, I did not want to say this in the meeting, but, and right there, there's the issue. Meaning this, the meeting was a very smart, left brain, linear conversation about the financials and the reality of what next year's budget's going to look like. However, the undercurrent was, that was an unhealthy meeting because people weren't comfortable to speak up in the meeting itself about the realities of what they're dealing with. So what we think the combination of smart and healthy is what's required for an organization to be successful. So therefore, we have four disciplines of a healthy organization. And I'll just go through them very, very quickly. Okay. The first one is to build and maintain a cohesive leadership team. And when we come back and talk about the five dysfunctions in a couple of moments, I'll break that down for you in like, you know, as much detail as you want. But the first thing is let's build and maintain a cohesive leadership team. The second one is to create clarity with this caveat. The leadership team of the organization needs to create clarity together as a team, not in isolation, not where the CEO or a leader on the team comes down from the mountaintop and says, I figured out next year's strategy, here's our goals and objectives, that's what we're doing. The key thing here is that we're building on the first discipline of building and maintaining a cohesive leadership team, where now the leadership team has to create clarity together. And we have six critical questions that we ask our clients to walk through that's in the advantage from the clarity stuff. So the first question is, why does the organization exist beyond making money? Kind of a core purpose statement. The second one is, how are we gonna behave where we help a client define mm -hmm. what are their core values? The third one is, what do we do? So when we say, what do we do? When we ask that question, this isn't your you know, typical long drawn out mission statement that has everything on the road under it. We just want a client, whether they read the advantage or work with us, to have one simple statement with no marketing adjectives, no best of breed, no world-class nonsense, just what do we do for whom, when, and where. 
And having the simplicity of that written down really allows just not the leadership team, but the rest of the organization to fully understand this is the business that we're in and the business we're not in. That's empowering. It is when you get that right, mm -hmm. but we don't want it to be glossy or marketing. And some of these statements you may not ever publish. You may not ever put on a website. It's really for the people inside that organization to have clarity to help them make really good decisions. Great point. So real quick, the fourth one is strategic anchors. Meaning when we are about to make a strategic decision as an organization, what are the couple of things that we use as filters when we're about to make those decisions? And if we have more time, I go into detail there. Our fifth question is really critical. And it's what's most important right now or said differently, what's the single most important thing that we as an organization need to focus on for the next six to 12 months? And what's key to that question, which makes that conversation both fun and interesting and frustrating is the word single. What's the single most important thing that we need to focus on for the next six to 12 months? That's a very dynamic conversation. And then the final six question under clarity is roles and responsibilities. Who does what? Who on the leadership team or who on any team in the organization, just what are they responsible for? And do we have clarity amongst the team as to what our colleagues are responsible for? Well, let me ask. So these are great questions. These are very thought-provoking questions. These are very deep questions. Mm -hmm. So when you work with clients yeah. that have never thought in this way, mm -hmm. how do you get everybody, one, to feel safe around the table so they can talk about this stuff? And then what's the benefit of before and after when all these questions are figured out? Yeah, so great question. So let's bounce up a couple layers back to smart and healthy for a moment. So when clients ask us to come in and do just plain old strategic planning for them, the answer is we could do that, but why? Because if the final outcome of just a strategic planning conversation is to get answers to questions like these on a piece of paper, if the team that came up with that is not tight and cohesive to begin with, we know they're gonna have execution issues down the road. So it's the combination of both smart and healthy that really gets after this. Likewise, which is kind of the opposite of your question, if an organization asks us to come in and help them do team building, like we could do that, but why? Because if we go outside and do trust falls and ropes courses or a cooking class together, what happens is we come back into work the following day and we're the same as when we left because we did not root the conversations into the real reason why that team existed. And that's to accomplish something. What's the result we're shooting for? What's the goals, the objectives, and the strategies? So that's why when a team has to go through some strategic planning stuff or get answers to questions like this down on paper, it's important that the team is working on becoming more cohesive. And it's also important when you do team building that you embed real conversations as to what you're trying to strive for in those types of conversations. Now on the back end, so what really is key about the execution of this, when you answer all these clarity questions, really gets into the third and fourth discipline of this mm -hmm. four disciplines model. Okay. So the third one is to over-communicate clarity. So once the leadership team, or again, any departmental team comes up with the type of clarity that they are responsible for, now they have to cascade the heck out of this. And we say over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, seven times, there's magic in the number seven. A lot of research suggests that people need to hear a message approximately seven times before they start paying attention to what's even being said. So what we try to coach our leaders towards is get used to repeating yourself to the point where you're tired of repeating yourself. The same exact messages over and over again and tie what it is you're communicating inside your organization 
back to your clarity. So let me ask Always. you about that. Mm -hmm. So if I say the exact same thing in the exact same way to my people <laughs> over and over and over again, yes. they're going to stop listening. So obviously we make little differences. Perhaps we might have different media we use. Absolutely. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, absolutely. So you do have to get creative. But you and I both have worked with people before, both that were bosses of ours and perhaps subordinates of ours at some point, that they need to hear what you communicated to them last week, last month, last quarter, last year is still as important today as when you originally communicated it. Otherwise, they're thinking, well, they haven't mentioned it in quite some time. Maybe this isn't as important as it used to be. Great point. So that's just something to keep in mind. But yeah, you have to be creative in how you go through. So, and perhaps the listeners of this show should listen to this show seven times, because of course <laughs> that, that will help my rating. So Absolutely. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, so what's number four? Yeah, the fourth one real quick is just reinforce clarity through human systems. So basically, if you think about creating and maintaining a cohesive leadership team, and then you're creating clarity, and then you're cascading clarity, ultimately at the end of the day, it's like, how is this gonna be integrated into our organization? And we just call it human systems. Meaning, if you answer the second question on core values, have you now embedded that into your hiring process, your firing process, and your recognizing and rewarding process? Or is it just a piece of clarity that you put on paper? So if a lot of the decisions that the leadership team are making, if that doesn't turn itself into some systems and processes in the organization, then we just have great conversations that we don't embed into the organization. What's key on this though, is sometimes you can't overscript it. Like putting too many processes inside the organization just becomes burdensome and now it's a bureaucracy. So you just have to be careful as to how much you formalize it versus it's still one of those things that you can edit and you can change and you adjust as the organization grows. I will tell you that's something that we struggle with here at Blackmore Enterprises. We do wanna have processes that do exactly what you said, but every time we start writing them, is it not enough or is it too much? Because I never want to get to the point where I'm taking somebody's ability to make decisions Absolutely. for the reason that I hired them mm -hmm. because they're following a process. I want them to think. So is there any magic tool that you can use to say, this is how far you want to go and the rest, you got to trust your people that you got the right people there. So my advice is this pretty simple. It's just live in the tension of what you just stated, meaning you don't want to over-engineer it, but you also can't be so vague that no one understands what you're communicating. And just as a leader, the advice is embrace the tension that both of those create, which causes you and your leadership team to say, okay, are we over-engineering this? Are we making our dress policy here at the workplace way too complicated? And does it fill up 12 pages of our employee manual? And if so, we over-engineered this thing. So 12 pages on the jeans to wear for casual Friday is probably not the best course. Is what and you're there saying. are organizations who've done just that. <laughs> That's too much. Well, fair enough. Yeah. Well, I can't help but notice, you know, of the four disciplines, one deals with making sure we have a, a good team and all the other ones are being about clarity. Hmm. Yeah, it is creating clarity, over communicating clarity, and then reinforcing clarity through a lot of stuff. So clarity is pretty important in this process. Criti critical, but go back to the original statement I made, and that is the team creating clarity together. That is essential. Because when we get to the team model in a moment, because it is all integrated, people need to have the opportunity to weigh in to buy-in. Weigh in to buy-in, I love that. And, and it, I can think of situations where people have told me, Trace, you're gonna do this, and because I didn't have the ability to say what I thought about it, mm -hmm. I probably secretly made it fail. So can we talk about that for a moment? Why not? Okay, so um, 
I'll put this in the context in a few moments when we get through the, the, the team model. Is this counseling? Is this what we're doing now? Sure, why not? Okay, fine. I All need right. that. So when we talk about commitment in the team environment, which is right in the center of our team model, again, you've already heard me say, we need to give people the opportunity to weigh in, to buy in. And when we do that, though, one of the dangers that organizations can get into is that they want to lead from a basis of consensus, right? So is everybody okay with this? Is everybody on board? Is everybody agree? And if we're making decisions on a basis of consensus, the result is going to be a very mediocre decision because we've waited too long. The competition has passed us up. I'm just trying to help all of you feel good versus it being a really good decision. So let's, let's kind of debate something for a moment. And that is, if we get to topics at the leadership level that have risen in the ranks of the organization that we have to deal with, I would hope when those topics make it to the table, there's natural disagreement because you're going to deal with the most difficult topics in the organization. So if that's the case, there should be natural disagreement. How are you going to deal with that? We're going to talk about that in a moment. But I do know this. You need to be okay as a leadership team walking out of a meeting, being in support of precisely when you disagree with. And that's the challenge. And the challenge on a team really is, how do we get people to be in support of when they precisely disagree with? And there's multiple answers. I don't know that this is the silver bullet, but I see it work with a lot of our clients, and that is this. People need to have the opportunity to feel like they were heard as the decision is being made. And that is such an art, not so much of a science, but it's an art that a leader possesses where they help team members not feel entertained, Right? Not feel manipulated, but a leader can help a follower feel like they were truly listened to and their opinion was considered as the decision was being made. And when you can do that as a leader, that is pretty special because now team members can walk out of the room supporting it precisely when they disagree, as long as they felt heard. That's great. So all these things, of course, are leading to the five dysfunctions of a team. That's right. The things that don't work. So I always get confused of how to tell people about this book because it's <laughs> called the five dysfunctions of team, but it doesn't really teach you the dysfunctions. I guess it shows you the dysfunctions to teach you the proper functions. So how do you even explain that yeah. to somebody? <laughs> so yeah, uh, the original book title, I think was published back in 2002, was called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And when Pat wrote The Advantage, you know, we referenced, of course, the book, but we also referred to it as the five behaviors of a team or the positive way of looking at it. But we kind of use those terms kind of interchangeably. But yeah, there are five different components of it. And when we refer to the dysfunctions, it really is how do we overcome those? How do we overcome those dysfunctions? And I love it because you've got to do one before you graduate to the other. And you've got to do that one before the next one. And it, when you read it, it, it makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. It's logical, but yet there's so many teams that don't do it. Yeah, it, it is so logical. And that's why I think a lot of Pat's books make so much sense because it, it is common sense. You feel these dynamics in the workplace when you're working with team members. So the first step really is we have to build trust on the team, but not like competency-based trust where, you know, I've worked for you or with you long enough that when I say this, I know you're gonna respond in a very specific way. It's more vulnerability-based trust. So what that means in the team environment is I'm being open, I'm being transparent, I'm not covering up, I'm not concealing. I have something to say as a team member and I just put it out there regardless of who's in the room. We don't want hierarchy on a team, meaning if the leader's in the room or not in the room to change how the conversation goes on a team. We just want someone to feel comfortable showing up at work and being the person who they are versus 
there's some sort of facade and they have to be a different person in the work environment, which just kind of changes how they engage with people. But here's kind of a subtlety. If you think about being transparent and being vulnerable, just because you're transparent doesn't mean you're being vulnerable, right? And I can tell you right now that I'm wearing a light blue shirt and that's being transparent. That doesn't make me necessarily vulnerable. But on the path to vulnerability, you can stop at transparency and kind of start there. What really gets an individual and therefore a team over the hump is that there are two things that are consistent with vulnerability. One, it's a risk that they're taking by putting it out there. Again, by me telling you that I have a light blue shirt on, not much of a risk by telling you that. So it has to be a risk. And then the second thing is, I'm willing to have a conversation with you about it. So if you think about all the issues, business, non-business related on any sort of team that you're a part of, leading or a member, can you do that, right? Can you take a risk by admitting things, right? Are you willing to have a conversation about it? Or if for some reason you shy away from it, want to cover up, want to conceal. And when teams do that, that causes dysfunction. Well, I will tell you that my teams here at our company, we've done a lot of work towards this. Mm. It's harder before it gets easier. And it's very hard to start that dialogue in the beginning. Well, we've been doing it for so long, I've forgotten some of that stuff. And another fellow business owner and recently invited me to one of his meetings and he asked me to weigh in and I started doing some of the items that oh. you mentioned and it did not go over well <laughs> at all because none of the legwork was given. So if somebody was going to start to be vulnerable, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously they got to do more than say, this is the blue shirt that I'm wearing, but are there some guidelines so everybody feels comfortable along with that process? Because obviously I didn't even do the process. I just rushed in and I totally halted that meeting and they all thought I was nuts. Yeah, of course they did. (laughs) Right. So you you can't apply even, even in the same organization, you can't apply what you've done on team A to team B, even in the same culture, because every team is different. Every team is unique and they have their own norms or expectations, if you will, on how people are going to engage and behave. But back to tips, though, in terms of if this is something that you want to do, what's kind of your first step in doing so? Well, with each of the five dysfunctions, we have a corresponding kind of role of the leader. And for this to work well in a team environment, it's very simple. The leader has to go first because as a team member, what's happening is I'm sitting around the table and we're having conversations about work and business and moving things forward and clients and products and services. And there's a topic that requires some vulnerability because there's a lot of opinions on that and people won't go there. Well, here's the trick, right? If the leader's not gonna go there, people on the team are not gonna feel safe to go there as well. So our advice is the leader has to go first and be consistent with that over some time and then encourage the rest of the team to follow suit. And when they do, team members typically follow suit. But the leader has to go first. Otherwise you're thinking, I'm not sticking my neck out there. Sure. I'm not going to be the first one who goes. Great point. All right. So now we've got good trust in the team. People feel they can be vulnerable with mm. each other. And now what? So what I do want to be careful of is we do not want to wait until our trust cup is 100% full before we move on to the next one, which is really about having healthy conflict. Okay. Because having healthy conflict can really help build trust on a team. But conflict in the absence of trust is just office politics. Conflict with trust, a foundation of trust, is pursuit of truth. And that's what we want the team to get after. So I have to reiterate this, and that is we don't do conflict resolution. That's not what this is about. Because a lot of people look at our model and say, oh, conflict, you help us with conflict resolution. 
No, the exact opposite. We are encouraging you as an organization, as a team, to have conflict because there are really critical topics that that group of people need to discuss and therefore decide to move the organization forward. And there's tons of reasons why people don't want to do it. It's uncomfortable. It's emotional. We see this all the time with our clients. They default to the subject matter expert around the table. So if we're having a big conversation about whatever it is in the organization, we want the finance person, the HR person, the operations person challenging the IT person and not just defaulting to the IT's subject matter expertise. So that's another reason why people don't do it. The ultimate question that I love to ask clients when they're struggling and really just having a difficult time engaging in conflict is this. What's at risk if we don't roll up our sleeves and have this difficult conversation? What's at risk in the organization? Are we going to miss the timing in the market? Are we going to be over budget? Are we not going to satisfy our clients? So the answer to that question is different for every organization, mm -hmm. for every team, for every decision. But what's at risk if we don't have this conversation? And there's a very specific issue that needs to be identified in that case. That's a great question because it sort of brings you out of the moment. And now you're kind of able to rise above it and see the issues if you don't have this conversation. And maybe it does take some of the politics about it. And maybe it was a conversation that you and I have, but recently someone told me the definition of politics was when you change the way you say something based on who's in the room. Was that you? Yeah, it wasn't me, but that's very good. Uh, very, very good. Because again, use like a, a military example for a moment. You know, back in kind of the some of the desert wars, you know, people would come under the tents, and they would rip off the Velcro stripes on the side of their uniform, throw in the center of the table and say, none of this rank matters right now in this conversation. We're here to save lives. We want teams to be able to do the same exact thing. So whether you report to the CEO, whether you report to a manager or director, when you're around the table, do the same exact thing. Strip those titles away, put them in the center of the table and say, that doesn't matter. We have to solve this problem because are we more concerned about making it right or being right? Because if I'm more concerned about being right as an individual, I'm not going to go after making it right for the organization and therefore the customer or the vendor, whoever we're serving. I love that because so many times when we are in disagreements, we're worried about ourselves about being right mm -hmm. and not about doing the right thing. Is there something that I can do for myself? Is there a question that I can ask myself to say, okay, am I worried about being right? Maybe that's the question. Or am I worried about doing the right things? I know a lot of people struggle with that. Yeah, I think you just have to put that out there. And again, as simple as this model is, and sometimes the complexity of applying it, because it's just, it's all human conversations, right? And you're not really sure, should I go first? Should I sit back? Should I say this? Should I not? If I say this, is that going to put me in jeopardy, me and my job? But at the end of the day, we're all just passing through our roles right? We're just passing through our roles at the end of the day. I'm in a certain role right now. I'm passing through it. Am I really honoring the reason why I'm in this role and the organization that gives me a paycheck? And I know that's kind of like going towards a higher calling, if you will, mm -hmm. in terms of having people think that through, but uh, it is difficult. I totally recognize it. But yeah, am I more concerned right now being right versus making it right? And when we introduce like terminology like that to a client, we just have them talk about that right now. Hey, pause the conversation. Are, are you worried right now that your opinions are not going to be shared across the team and that it's going to make you look bad? Or are you concerned about solving this problem? And that, that's kind of hard, right? If you think about like getting in a conversation oh, like absolutely. that. absolutely. But that's what you have to do as a team. Yeah. And that, in essence, makes you vulnerable. Therefore, conflict 
can help you build trust. We just went a whole circle around that. How about that? <laughs> yeah, and this is the healthy part that you referred to when we first started talking about this. And why I love the books that we're talking about so much is because when, when you're taking business classes, it's all about the spark. It's about the balance sheet. It's about mm -hmm. the budget. It's about the P&L. It's about the cash flow statement. It's none of the stuff that you really need to know to run a business or run a team in a healthy way. And I haven't been able to found any other academic way other than books like these mm -hmm. in order to learn those things. So I appreciate you doing some of the things that you do to help teams get to that point because our school systems definitely aren't doing that. That's the smart and healthy piece. We focused on the smart stuff in our education. We have found out recently that there are several MBA programs around the country that are using Pat's The Five Dysfunctions of a Team book. And some of those graduates are entering the workplace. They introduce the book into uh, their employer. And all of a sudden, we sometimes get a phone call from someone who's like, you know, 27, 28 years old and said, I read your book in my MBA program and my company's now struggling. We need your help. How cool is that? So it is kind of cool that that's making its way back to academia. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Okay, so we talked about trust. Yeah. We talked about fear of conflict. Mm -hmm. Where do we go now? So the third one, and we talked about this just a few moments ago, is around commitment. And again, the headline is giving people the opportunity to weigh in, to buy in. Are we focused on consensus decision-making? Uh, are we worried about everybody agreeing? Or can we end conversations with team members being in support of precisely when they disagree with? But that is the kind of the third category. And the role of the leader when it comes to commitment is to force clarity and closure. And again, that's more of an art than it is a science, but let me give you one or two tips around that. How do you as a leader know when it's time in the conversation to force clarity and closure. Well, again, two things. One, people start to repeat themselves. And you can just tell in the conversation that people don't feel like they're being heard, so they repeat it over and over again. And as a leader, you have to have the discernment to say, okay, are they adding any new information or are they just repeating themselves? And that, that's kind of the second thing. Is any new information entering the conversation at this point? So as a leader, you can take those two tidbits and say, my team is kind of circling right now. Let's bring clarity and closure to this conversation. And sometimes it's simple as this. We're not ready to make a decision yet, but let's close out this conversation. That way, everybody on the team understands the conversation's over. We'll come back to it later. Or we can make a decision based upon the conversation right now. It's just so important for the leader to say, here's clarity and closure to what it is we just talked about. There's multiple ways we go about doing that. But that's really key for a leader to be able to do when it comes to getting commitment on the team. Excellent. And you shared recently with me the fist of five, which yeah. I didn't know about, which is one of the techniques that you use on, on figuring out where to go with this. It's really helpful for clients when they're around, again, the table and they're just struggling through a particular topic. And it's just a technique that we'll use midway through a conversation or towards the end of it, where we'll just say, okay, when it comes to hiring this new CRM vendor, what have you, where does everybody stand on this? Do a fist of five and we just have the team go one, two, three and hold up as many fingers, whether it's a five, four, two, one or whatever. And it isn't voting, meaning it's, we have a total of 21 points based upon the team and therefore that's the decision. We just look at it and say, if anybody's holding up three fingers or more, it's time to move on because they're pretty much in support of. Yeah, and I think the point is that's a tool a leader can use to help see where we are around the table. And then maybe we're talking about something we don't need to talk about. Everybody's in agreement. We continue to talk about it and we just need to move on. And here's why that's so powerful, because if everyone is holding up, you know, three, four or five fingers, it is time to move on. But the other thing, though, for you as a leader, well, don't you want to know before the conversation is over, 
that someone just now voted one or a two, but they haven't been part of the conversation for 20 minutes. Now it's like, we need to draw you into the conversation. And that can result back to great conflict because they haven't shared their opinion and they haven't made themselves vulnerable perhaps to share their opinion. So let's work that scenario. So you're leading a meeting. Yeah. We've got 12 people at the table. Everybody in there is three, fours, and five. And then you come to me and I'm holding one finger. Yeah. So as a leader, how do you skillfully, obviously I didn't feel comfortable weighing into this conversation, mm -hmm. but we can't move on until right. I weigh in. That's so right. how do you make me feel comfortable so I can do that? Well, so a couple of things in your question there. If I can make you comfortable, okay. I will try. Fair enough. But that's not my goal. <laughs> All right. So. I am going to ask you, and it just very simply. So, you know, so Trace, you kind of said you're at a one right here. So, just tell me what you're thinking. Why are you giving this a one? And I, I just want to draw you into the conversation. But at the same exact time, I should have talked about this when we were discussing conflict. Conflict is not comfortable, and we don't want teams to say that once we do get comfortable, then we'll engage in conflict, and then we'll bring clarity and closure to conversations. We'd rather have the team get used to being uncomfortable, build up that tolerance of saying, again, what's at risk if we don't have this conversation? This is a difficult topic. It's gonna to be uncomfortable. We know that going into it. Let's embrace it anyhow. So getting people comfortable is not really our goal. Getting them after the issue is our goal. That's awesome. <laughs> All right, so we've got trust. We've dealt with conflict. We've got commitment. What's the next step? So the fourth one is the most challenging for everybody that we work with. And it really is challenging because it's peer-to-peer -peer accountability, not hub and spoke accountability. Because if you think about the word accountability, all right, it feels punitive, it feels negative, it feels very reactive. And you've probably been in a conversation before where you're like, we need to have a sit down conversation and I'm gonna hold that person accountable. And that's, that's very hub and spoke, right? Boss to subordinate. Well, what we strive for on teams is peer-to-peer -peer accountability, where colleagues go to another colleague without having to get the boss involved to have an accountability conversation. Now, as I say that, again, in a lot of people's minds, when they hear accountability, it still feels punitive and reactive and very negative. I, I wanna totally reprogram and rebrand that for you. If we're gonna spend all this time as a team building trust and being vulnerable, right? If we're gonna have really in-depth, difficult and uncomfortable conflict conversations, and we're gonna be committed and support conversations, even if we disagree with, accountability is just simply this, it's protecting promises, right? Let's protect the promise that we've made together as a team through all those dialogues of these really important conversations that are essential for growing and moving the organizations forward. So think about it from that perspective. Don't think about the negative, punitive version of accountability that's been part of your perhaps career. You're just protecting a promise. Um, so I, I have a great story here of a client that does this incredibly well that I think would be great to share now. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. So several years ago, I'm with a particular client here in Atlanta, and it was the third time I was with them, which is kind of key to the story because the very first time I was with them, completely dysfunctional. Chairs thrown around the room, all that sort of stuff. Uh, we've had that happen. No, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, but not to that level, but uh, almost to the point where people couldn't make eye contact around the table. They couldn't go to dinner and have a normal conversation. Wow. So it was very challenging, very difficult, a lot of history, a lot of baggage. So this is probably six to nine months into the relationship. I'm back for the third time working with this particular team. They made tons of progress. 
The head of IT in the midst of this meeting says across to the table to the head of HR, the last time we were together, the single most important thing that we all agreed to was hiring very key positions. Since that time, I've seen nothing out of you or your department what's going on. So pause for a moment, right? You hear that story, and if you're a dysfunctional team, what do you think's gonna happen? If you're dysfunctional, you're digging your heels in. Right. You're gonna guard your turf. You're thinking, how dare you? How dare you in this public setting call me out like that? And that's what a lot of us are afraid of. Don't have me um, do conflict in the open environment. Don't let me be vulnerable. Let's not have accountability, because everyone is thinking all those sort of fears. But when a team is building all this foundational stuff that I've been talking about, and something like that happens in a meeting, which we encourage, by the way, here's what the response was. Head of HR says, you're right. I've dropped the ball. My mistake, I apologize. After today's meeting, can we walk back to my office? I have two folders. The first folder is ready to give to you. Um, the second folder is not, and for a few reasons it's not, but again, I apologize. But let's just walk back to my office and, and, and head of IT says, okay, sounds good. End of it, I mean, that was it. So if you think about like an EKG when you go to the cardiologist, that was a 15 second blip on the EKG in that meeting, meaning Within 15 seconds, that team was back to normal. On a dysfunctional team, it's gonna take that team six months to recover from that conversation. At least. Yeah, do you believe that that person called yeah. her out in that meeting? Yeah, and, and we're not truly having the real meeting in that meeting, we're having meetings outside of that meeting talking about everybody else. And we're gonna talk about the damage that that does here in a little bit, because that is significant. Okay. So let me just finish one piece of this story, because mm -hmm. it, it does come full circle on all the stuff we're talking about. So. Right after the head of IT says, oh yeah, that's fine, I'll walk back to your office, that's great. Other people on the team now started chiming in and saying, hey, I'm also having a problem getting some stuff out of your area. Uh, me too, I'm also having a is everything okay? Now this head of HR becomes completely vulnerable and, and breaks down. There was a significant issue going on in her personal life that nobody had any visibility into whatsoever. So significant that it would impact anybody's work life and the team was clueless because she wasn't bringing that to work with her. So in that very moment, other team members, while it may have sounded like they were piling on, the conversation very shortly thereafter shifted to, we're concerned about you, how can we help you? Mm -hmm. Now the team can rally around that individual because she was vulnerable about admitting it, but then they embraced peer-to-peer -peer accountability. And that's a key thing that is important, but also challenging and also uncomfortable about peer-to-peer -peer accountability. We want the team to do it in the open, not behind closed doors. So we've always been taught in management you know, classes, praise publicly, reprimand privately. Well, if a behavior or a circumstance is going on in the team environment, where do you address it? In the team environment. And right there, that's a challenge for a lot of people. We go back to the story that I just shared though. If that hadn't taken place, they would have never gotten to the point where other people on the team could say, I'm also having a problem. What's going on? We care about you. We're concerned about you. And I can't help but thinking about Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, mm -hmm. which we talk about a lot on this show. And, you know, that team had a paradigm shift. You know, before then, they maybe could have faked wanting to help, but when they truly mm -hmm. understood, that was an immediate just reaction that they, they really wanted to help. They had to help. Mm -hmm. So It's critical, it's difficult. We do a team assessment for a lot of our clients and it's, it's available on our website and I'll show what that is a little bit later. But one of the questions in our team assessment 
It's question number eight out of 38 questions. I have it memorized because <laughs> it is the lowest ranked question on all of our clients when they, when they take this assessment. And that is this, team members point out one another's unproductive behaviors. So think about answering that on a scale of one to five, five being high, one being low. That's always the lowest rank amongst our clients that we work with because that is challenging if you think about that. And if you walk into the work environment every single day and you can't wait to point out everybody else's unproductive behaviors, you're kind of sick. You've got other issues going on in your life. But that is what a healthy team, that's what a cohesive team does. If there is a behavior that is unhealthy that you are displaying, I have to be able and willing to share that. Same thing for me. If there's an unhealthy behavior that I'm displaying, our relationship has to be so strong that you are willing and able to share that with me and not pull me aside in the hallway behind closed doors to share it, but to do it in the team setting. And again, as I say that, what I realize are people are thinking, no way. But remember this, whose feedback do you listen to? Because the conversation that I just kind of broke down for you, that's a lot of feedback. Whose feedback do you listen to? Well, it's really only those people that you trust. That's why accountability sits on top of commitment, which sits on top of conflict, which sits on top of trust. The issue and challenge here is that we isolate only on the topic of accountability and forget that there's those three layers underneath of it. Accountability does not go well when there's not trust on the team, we haven't had difficult conflict conversations, and we're not committed to what we've discussed together. I'm thinking to every stumble that I've ever had, and it all goes back to that. I don't think I've ever heard that message clarified so hmm. well. You only listen to the feedback from people that you trust. I mean, it'll go in your ear and out your other ear for people that you don't trust, but you really only internalize it and think about it from people that you trust. So we did all of that. We're mm -hmm. at that point, And now where are we? Okay. So um, the top of the pyramid is results. And specifically, we talk about collective results. So a couple things around this that are really key because it's a little bit different than how people and organizations think about results. And that is, this isn't everybody's swim lane responsibilities that they have as the department head or the VP head or the foreman of. This is the collective result that we as a unit, we as a department, or we as a company need to focus on. So what are the collective results that we're aiming for or shooting for? So when we see team members get around a table and we have conversations with them over a couple of days, there's this really interesting thing that typically plays itself out. And that is, do people belly up to the table as a vertical advocate representing their area of the business only? Or when they belly up to the table, are they a horizontal leader across the entire business? Completely different mindset. That changes the meetings you accept and reject. That changes who you travel to go see. That changes the way that you engage in a conversation because we think, as, as this doesn't sound right, but we think when you're on a team, the most important part and role you have is that of a generic team member. Meaning, I'm here first as a horizontal leader across this team to lead the organization. So we have this thing in the book, The Five Dysfunctions of the Team, called Team Number One, right? And we ask clients, who's your number one team? Is it the team that you lead or the team that you're on? And then we have a fun conversation after that. <laughs> I bet, because a lot of people don't even think about that. Yeah. And, and again, I'm just so impressed with how everything is laid out. There's a reason that's at the top of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. And the base bottom of the pyramid is trust. And if you don't work through all those, how are you ever going to think as a team that's right. and not just for yourself or the people that are around you? I mean, just think about the word teamwork. If the team isn't working on something together, then what are we talking about? 
the team has to be working on some something together. There's a difference between a basketball team and a golf team. A golf team is not a team. They shoot their round of golf, go into the clubhouse afterwards, and they add up their scores with the other people on their team, right? On a basketball team, you need and rely on the other people on that floor to successfully score a point. In other words, there are interdependencies. On a team, which is different than a work group, there are interdependencies. We need and rely on our colleagues to be successful. All right, Rick, so all of this is great. It's all centered around meetings. And if this is the first time I've ever thought this way or I've ever heard this, I'm thinking, does this guy want me to spend my entire week in meetings? <laughs> so, and you mentioned the book, Death by Meeting. So I can see these people out in the audience thinking, I'm gonna slowly die from these meetings. So what do you have to say for that? Yeah, and unfortunately, we've all been there. We've been on those horrible meetings where it's like, it's never gonna end. You're checking your watch or you've already given your status update, and after you've given your status update, your colleagues are now going, and you have your phone underneath the table looking at messages, right? Death by meeting. And we think some of the worst messages is when the leader asks the team for agenda items a day or a week before. Some of the team members send that. They get into the meeting room. Everybody gives a status update, and then the leader fills in all the blanks and does the majority of the talking. Right? That's death by meeting right there, right? Nobody wants to go to that meeting. So again, we wanna reprogram this in people's minds, especially if you're on a leadership team, that the time you look forward to the most every single week is your leadership team meeting, or whether it's every other week or once a month. And there's a specific way to go about doing that. So one of the first things is we can't do meeting stew. Because what I just described to you a couple of moments ago was meeting stew. Put everything in one big pot. Big strategic issues, small tactical issues, topics that one person on the team is passionate about, but not the other team members. You don't get closure to the topics that you do decide to discuss, and it's just one big, smelly, bad-tasting pot called a meeting stew. So we wanna break that down for clients, and one of the biggest premises is to say, we need to separate tactical conversations from your strategic conversations. They are two separate meetings. You don't do those different types of topics ever in the same meeting, they're two different meetings, and they don't have to be the same frequency. So. Tactical meetings typically happen on average once every week or in some of our clients' cases, once every two weeks. And tactical topics are just, think about it from this perspective. What are topics that have about a seven to 10 day runway? They're relevant topics for the next week or week and a half, couple of weeks perhaps. And it is a topic that you as a team member don't need to give an update on, but you wanna come around the table with your colleagues, right? And get their input on a problem that you're having. Because remember, you don't have to have everything figured out yourself. You're there as a team to help solve each other's problems, to lead the organization. And you know, if I'm struggling, if I'm the head of marketing, and there's a problem that we're having right now in the marketing department or with a certain vendor or with switching vendors or whatever it is, right? I want to bring that to my weekly tactical meeting with my leadership team and say, here's the problem. I need your input. That's perfect because I have a vendor call with them later this week. I want your input because here's the deal. You can look at this and say, Here's some of the best brains in the business around this table right now. Why wouldn't I want my colleagues' input on this topic? Sure. Yes, I own it. Yes, I'm responsible for it. Yes, I need to make the call, but I want to bring you into my world, and I need you to bring me into your world so we can be a real team. So those tactical topics, again, seven to ten kind of day runway, if you will, and they're topics that you can probably discuss. Do some quick problem solving, giving some advice in about 10 or 15 minutes per topic. That's a tactical meeting. Really simple and straightforward. And do not start that meeting with an agenda. We do a lightning round. 
Because if it's tactical only, nothing strategic, you don't have to have an agenda beforehand. We have a team in five minutes or less come into the room and say, okay, what are the big critical things we have to talk about today that are tactical in nature, nothing strategic? Everyone give me two or three ideas. And you do a whiteboard. Or if you're a virtual team, you do a go-to meeting or another piece of technology where you see them listed on all the things that the team should talk about. Tactical, again, tactical only. So chances are somebody that came into this conversation and thought it was death by meeting. Yeah. You described exactly what that meeting looked like, and I'm willing to bet that it didn't look like what you previously, just recently described. Because if I know I'm going into a meeting where the agenda is already set and the, none of the topics on the agenda of even interest to me, I'm checked out before the meeting has even begun. Sure. But if I'm bringing an issue that I need your help to solve and you're bringing an issue that you need my help to solve, I'm not bringing my phone out and checking messages in between, right? We're engaged. We're helping each other solve problems. We're leading the organization. That's entirely different than how most people do meetings. And this is my specific piece of advice. I don't think that it's in death by meeting, but I don't want leaders running their own meetings, right? Because if a leader runs their own meeting, they're going to dominate the majority of the conversation. I want team members to run the meeting. Rotate the facilitation of that meeting across team members, but don't let the leader run it. That's, that's great advice. And we, we've tried to do that here. And uh, as the owner, it was hard to let go of that vine, I just have to say. But on the back end of it, uh, I now, instead of having one leader, I have multiple leaders in that room. And now we're able to make better conversations. Through those better conversations, we make better decisions. And of course, trust was built all along the way. Win-win for everybody. Absolutely. This has been an incredible conversation. I don't think anybody needs to read the books now because you've described <laughs> everything that was in the books. No, of course, there's so much great information in the books. And I, I'm going to put books that we've mentioned on the show notes page. So uh, Scaling Up Nation, if you're out there and you want to get more information on that, go to scalinguph20.com and I'll have all that information for you. But I also know that uh, the Table Group puts out a lot of free tools that if somebody's listening here today and they say, you know, I'd like to just get my feet wet a little bit, how can they do that? Yeah, several things on our website, which is tablegroup.com, but I know you said you'll put it on your website, right? So you can link to it right from your podcast website. So when you link to ours, here's a couple things that you'll get. Free organizational health assessment. So back up to one of the very first things we talked about. Smart and healthy, the four disciplines of a healthy organization. So we're all about organizational health. There's a free assessment out there. You can assess the health of your organization. Another thing that very popular on our website is something called The Hub. And The Hub is where we have articles that Pat writes on a regular basis. We highlight sometimes a few of our clients, a few of our consultants write articles in terms of what they are experiencing in the field, working with our uh, client organizations. Another thing also that's very popular is Pat has videos on our website where he breaks down several of the different models that he has written about you know, for the last uh, 15, 20 years. And what's important about those videos and why people like them is that they're three minutes or less. Yeah. I've used all of those and they are well worth the trip through the internet. What is the one thing, Rick, that you're hoping that somebody listening to this conversation gets out of today? If you're in a work situation that is less than optimal, perhaps even we used the word before, dysfunctional, it only gets worse when you ignore it. So in other words, if you're in charge of a team, of a department, uh, of a company, whatever that is, your family, the nonprofit that you volunteer at, and you have some sort of leadership role, and there's a level of dysfunction, 
It only gets worse when you ignore it. You have to step in and step up to the issue. There you go. This has been awesome. You've clarified a lot of questions that I've had from my own reading, and I think you've sparked an interest within the Scaling Up Nation for people to find out more about the things that we're talking about. But I'm not quite done with you yet. I've got some lightning round questions for you if you are ready to accept that challenge. Bring it on, Trace. All right, so my first question, as you can see from my office, I actually do have a DeLorean in it. I do have a flux capacitor. I am a fan of the Back to the Future series. So we are going to get into the DeLorean and we are gonna set the time circuits back to the first day that you've started working with this material <laughs> and helping businesses. We get out of the DeLorean, you see your former self, what advice do you give? So, um, man, it's such an awesome question. For me, it's actually pretty simple. And that is don't overinvest where the money is, rather invest where I can have the biggest impact. All right, very good advice. Um, and of course, for my for my own well-being, because I'm always trying to replenish my book list, what are the last three books that you've read? So, I mean, I'm always reading probably three or four books at the same exact time. Usually one's from business, one is from like faith or relationships, and the other one's usually a history okay. book. So I got, I got one from each category. Fair enough. All right, so, Leadership and Self-Deception. That book has been out for such a long time. I never read it until a leader here recently said, for the work that we do, that would be a really good book to walk through. And it's been incredibly powerful. And it goes back to something I think I said earlier, and that is when, when someone's personal interests are at odds with what's best for the organization, that's an issue. And Leadership and Self-Deception does such a great job breaking that down. So um, the second book, so again, my category is kind of faith and relationships, The Cure. So I, I've read The Cure probably 12 times. I reread it every year, sometimes multiple times a year. So it's, it's kind of a faith book and it really, it's two paths. Do you want to choose the path of pleasing God or the path of trusting God? Hmm. And it's a really incredible read with a lot of depth. That's why I reread it every year. Okay. <laughs> and then from a history perspective, Beneath the Scarlet Sky, it is about World War II Nazi-occupied Italy. And it is literary fiction. So it really is a true story, but the author had to take a couple of... Um, creative freedoms. Creative freedoms to kind of tie some of the story together. And it was just fascinating. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. And obviously, with a life like yours, eventually Hollywood's going to get a hold of it. They're going to write a movie about it. Who do they cast to play Rick Packard? Oh, none other than Tom, Tom Hanks. There you go. So I have been told that I sound like Tom Hanks. I do not hear that at all, but that is huh. uh, an email that I get from this show. I think maybe their their equalizer or volumes messed up in their car when they're listing because I don't hear that at all. Well, that's why I chose it. Well, there you go. Uh, and then my last question, and then I'll leave you alone, I promise. If you could talk with anybody throughout history, who would it be with and why? I can't give you a simple answer, I'm sorry. That's fine. I got two-ish. Fair enough. All right, so kind of very related to something I said earlier, the first person for me would like be the Apostle Paul, because I'm just like, what happened on the road to Damascus, man? I want to hear about that. Then the other is, I want to talk to the key figures from World War II. And it's almost like 
if I could have up on stage both the powers of the Allied forces and the Axis, it'd be like, I want to like sit there and talk to Roosevelt and Truman and Eisenhower and Churchill and Patton and even like Mussolini and the Japan's emperor. And I don't know if I want to talk to Hitler or not, but um, like Charles de Gaulle and Stalin, Montgomery, the British commander. I mean, I think I, I just read a lot of history on World War II. And I just would love to have like all those people on like one big table and like talk to me, right? And let's just break this down. And what were you thinking? And what was going on? And how did you strategize? That would be fun for me. Well, I gotta tell you, I just had the vision of, of you having all these people sitting at a table and taking them through the five dysfunctions of a table. <laughs> Can you imagine what the world outcome would have been if you would have had that opportunity? That's what you should have set the time circuits to. That could have been one of the most challenging teams ever to work with, but would have loved it, yeah. Rick, thanks so much for coming on the show. Lots of great information, and we really appreciate all the wisdom that you shared with us. I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much, Trace. Wow, I really had fun interviewing Rick. Lots of great information. Folks, I think that could have been an interview that went on for hours. So much good stuff there. As you've just heard, there's a lot of pieces to bringing a team together. As we all know, teams are made up with people. And unfortunately, people come with their issues and most of them are dysfunctional issues. So if we put all those together into a team, by default, we have a dysfunctional team. So you've just heard a sample of how people like Rick help people like us bring teams together. Now you can hire somebody like Rick or you can try to do some things yourself. It really depends on what your culture is for how much your team will allow you to do and how long things have been dysfunctional. If they've been dysfunctional forever, the people that help make them dysfunctional, it's really difficult to get those people to change the dysfunction into something more functional. So a couple of things that Rick mentioned were some of my favorite books. Pat Lencioni, a great author. He does write in the fable format. You heard I had a transition on how I think about the fable format. I really like books that tell me what to do and give me action steps. And Pat's books do that, but they do that with a story first. And then the very last chapter, they really wrap it up and give you the action steps. So the two books, if you want to learn more about this, one of my all-time favorite team-building books is called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. So if you're interested in that book, I've got a link to it. It's scalinguph2o.com forward slash the number five and dysfunctions, all one word. So scalinguph2o.com forward slash five dysfunctions. The other book, which is fast approaching, also one of my all-time favorite books, is one of his newest books. We learned on the show, of course, that it was not his newest book. Is called The Advantage. And I've got a link to that. It's scalinguph2o.com forward slash The Advantage, all one word. The Advantage is great if you don't like the business fable format but it's also good because I believe it takes 12 books and wraps them all up and gives you some awesome action items that you can take to start making your team more cohesive. 
Rick also mentioned that there are some free tools available for you on their website. So if you go to my show notes page, I will link you directly to those tools so you can start using those. They really are phenomenal. Now, a lot of people ask, you know, where do I start when I am trying to make my team a better team? And when I work with other water treatment companies in building their team, and by the way, that's one of my favorite things to do when people allow me to come in and really get down to know their team members and help them establish what makes them such a great company. The first thing that I always do is help them define their core values. And I know we're hitting on a great topic here because the last podcast was about Daniel Perry and how he carries out his core values in his Chick-fil-A restaurant. And they live those core values in every single thing that they do. So we know how successful a company can be when they live their core values. So a question that I received, actually several questions that I received from our last podcast, all dealt with core values. So Scaling Up Nation, I hear you. You want to know more about developing your company's core values. So the first question that I got, and this is a new Pinks and Blues. Normally, Pinks and Blues, we're doing industry-related items. Well, I guess we have to have a team in order to be in business. So this is industry-related as well. So the first question I have is about how I enjoy studying businesses and how they use their core values. Just like we did with Chick-fil-A, I do that with pretty much every customer transaction that I experience. It really gets on my wife's nerves, but this is how I learn. This is how I make my own company better. This is how I make other companies better when I'm working with them. So the question that this listener asks is, what are some of the other companies that I really think get their core values right? So you know how I feel about Chick-fil-A. I think they are outstanding when it comes to living their core values. Another one is a gas station. Yes, folks, a gas station. In the South, we have a gas station called Quick Trip. And I believe they go up maybe to Southern Virginia and down almost to Florida. I'm not sure how far over they go. But I will pass 10 other gas stations to get to a Quick Trip. And Quick Trip is so into their core values. They train them, they hire, they fire, they reward, they recognize on them. They make sure that every single time a customer walks into one of their gas stations, they are greeted and they say, welcome to Quick Trip. And there's never a line because people stop what they're doing. If they're stocking something, they realize that the only reason they're stocking something is because customers are there buying it and they make sure that the customer knows they're appreciated and they can get in and out quickly. So Quick Trip is a great company. Another thing that they do, say somebody with an MBA wanted to join their executive ranks. Well, I've heard that they start everybody in their gas station so they can learn their core business. And then when they learn that, they can move up to a more executive job. I think that just screams, we live our core values. And of course, the other company is Disney. Folks, if you've ever been to anything that Disney touches, 
you know it is all about the experience. And Disney does everything that they can to make sure that that experience is magical. I don't know if you've ever taken a Disney cruise, but it is incredible the links that everybody will go to to make sure that you have the best vacation that you ever had. So those are my top three companies that I love to study their core values. Now, I also have a few that I like to study that are the anti of following their core values. I'm not going to share those with you on the air, but I'm sure you have a few of those yourself. My challenge to you is start looking out for these things. The next time you have a customer service experience, good or bad, see if you can figure out what that company's core values are and see if you're right. See if those people are really living them. And when you start looking for items like this, you will be amazed at what core values can do for a company. Now, that being said, Our next question is, how do you go about discovering your company's core values? And I love the way that this person worded their question. They use the word discovering. And a lot of times people say, how do we write our core values? Or how do we figure out what our core values are? Well, chances are you already know what your core values are. You just might not have the right words to define them. So I'm going to give you a couple of tips to help you discover what your core values are. First thing is, and I love that Rick said this, he said, without weigh-in, there is no buy-in. So if you can include your entire team in this discussion, your entire team will support these core values. This is something that will take some time. So don't rush this. Try not to leave people out and make sure that you're committed to go all the way through until you find the right words that define your core values. Then, just like Rick said, you have to tell them seven times in order for them to hear it the first time. So a few other things that might help you discover what your core values are you might want to bring a list, maybe 50 or 100 core value words. Not that you're going to use any of them, but it just gets everybody in the spirit of thinking along the terms of good, succinct words that describe what you're trying to discover. Ask each other, what are the rules that I hired onto? What are the things that attracted me to this company that if they weren't there anymore, I would not want to work for this company? And by the way, folks, that's a great question. Friend of show, Tim Fulton, my business coach, he encourages everybody in his group to ask their team members, what would have to happen to make you want to quit? What a weird question, right? But think about when somebody does quit, we ask that question by default. What do I have to do to make you want to stay? Well, that's the reactive response to that issue. What if we make it proactive and everything's going great? I want you to stay here, but what would have to happen for you to want to quit? And what a great conversation to have because now you can fix that before you lose a great person. 
And that's a great conversation to have during this discussion, because if you can figure out what you don't want to happen, you can start to form what you do want to happen, and those are your core values. Something else you might want to think of is the last time you've had to let somebody go. What were the behaviors that made you go with the decision to cut them loose? And those are the behaviors that you said those do not belong in our company. Sometimes looking at the anti-core values can actually help discover what your core values are. In working with different water treatment companies, more times than not, I will hear a core value be to make money or something along those lines. And one of my favorite quotes that Stephen Covey has is, no margin, no mission. Let's face it, if the company is not profitable, we don't have a company, we don't have any jobs. So we have to make a profit. But if our core values are true, if our core values are trained and lived by all, I argue that a byproduct of our core values is a profitable company. So if we get our core values right, by default, we are going to make money. It's very easy to get caught up in a bunch of core values. So we can't decide on a couple of different words, so we're gonna use all of the words. And before we know it, we've got 25 core values. Folks, the key here is less is more. We have five, and I actually defined the five that we have in our company on last week's episode. You can have more than five, but the more you have, the harder it is for people to train and the harder it is for people to recognize actions based on those core values. So less truly is more when it comes to this. Once you think you've got the correct core values, go ahead and test them. Think about the scenarios where if you did have to let somebody go, what were the things that they weren't doing according to your core values that would have forced your hand to let that person go? Or if you were to hire the best hire you ever could, what would be those qualities that you would be looking for that person? Get everybody in the room to participate in that conversation. And if everybody agrees, you're probably spot on to finding what your core values truly are. Once you're there, it's important for the group to define each one of those words. I mentioned the five core values that my company has. I was not responsible for that by myself. The team came up with those five items. And by the way, in case you're wondering, I'd love for you to go back to listen to the show again, but they were integrity, teamwork, gas, which stands for give a stuff, solution-oriented, and attitude. Now, those are just words that you're hearing me say, but in our company, we define them so they work for us, and it is how we hire fire, reward, and recognize everybody on our team. Finally, when everybody is good with these core values, you need to talk about them all the time. In every conversation that you have with team members, you need to work your core values in. When you recognize somebody for doing something right, you need to tie it back to a core value. 
If somebody is not performing properly, you need to tie it back to a core value. When you hire somebody, they need to be hired based on your core values. You need to talk about them and talk about them and talk about them and talk about them. At least seven times, print some materials, but don't just hang them on the wall. I'm sure we all know those companies out there that have these beautiful pictures behind beautiful frames, or maybe they're plaques of core values, and it's out in their lobby, and they've spent lots and lots of money on it, and you ask anybody in that building what their core values are, and they cannot tell you what they are. It's not important how pretty they look. It's important how you live them. Now, as I mentioned before, Rick mentioned a lot of free tools that are on the Table Group website. So I'll make sure that I have some links specifically to core values on my show notes page. The last question I have is a listener writes in about the procedures comment that I made on the last podcast episode. And I made a comment that if you had an issue with a person Before you treat it as a person issue or a people issue, you first explore that it's not a procedural issue. And the person wants to ask, can you talk a little bit more about that? And I can't remember exactly what I said on the last podcast, so I might be repeating myself a little bit. If I am, forgive me. But the next time you have an issue, ask yourself, is there a procedure that should have prevented that? And if there's not, that's the problem right there. If there is, then you need to ask yourself a couple of questions. One, is it a correct procedure? Did the fact the procedure was wrong, did that create the issue? If the procedure is correct, was it trained? And folks, I got to tell you, I don't like the word trained because trained is whoever's learning it. It's a passive action. If I'm the trainer, I'm now taking the action and somebody is passively listening to how well I know the subject matter. So if you remember, one of the guests I had on Scaling Up was Captain David Marquet, and he was a naval submarine captain. He wrote the book, Turn the Ship Around. He did not train anybody on his sub. What he did was he certified people. Now think about that term, certify versus train. If I train somebody, I'm doing the work. If I certify somebody, they're proving to me that they understand the subject material. So at our company, we do very little training. We do a lot of certifying. Once we, whoever is the person signing off on that, is comfortable that that person knows the material, we physically certify that person by signing off that they understand that. So ask yourself, was that done? Did they prove to you that they understood the procedure that whatever that issue came from? And if all of that was yes, well, you might have a people problem. And then if you have a people problem, I would suggest that you coach that person, but you keep track of how you're coaching them. And if the same thing occurs, I think you know what action you have to do from that. And nobody likes to have to let somebody go. But folks, we all have successful companies because we do things in a particular way. And if people can't do that, well, 
They can do what we do with somebody else, but they can't do it here. As Daniel Perry said, we promote them to customer. Nation, I started out at the top of the show telling you about all the things that we have coming up very soon in the water treatment community. One of the things I'm looking so forward to is the fact that we have a holiday. So October 1st through 5th is Industrial Water Week, and I want to do an episode each and every day on the topic of that day. So the twist is, instead of you guys just writing in, I want you to go to scalinguph2o.com and there's a button on there on the right side of the screen that says record voicemail. I want you to record your voice asking me your question and you're gonna hear your voice on Scaling Up. The other thing that's coming up, of course, is the Association of Water Technologies Convention. That's coming up in September. I'm going to try to plan some events where us Scaling Up Nation folk can get together, we can network a little bit, we can share ideas on how we can get the most out of the convention and just really enjoy each other's company. Folks, I really enjoy the fact that you guys listen to this show and I love the fact that you keep giving me ideas for this show and I cannot wait to bring more ideas to you next time on Scaling Up. Scaling Up.